I heard of a conversation between two men as they were working together. The one said to the other, I, I hear you're a Christian. What do you believe as a Christian? The man replied, I believe what my church believes. Pause. What does your church believe? Pause. It believes what I believe. More pause. So here comes the third question. Well, what do you both believe? We both believe the same thing. What a conversation. You've probably heard the statement, faith is like a good toothbrush. Everyone needs one, but it should be his own. I like how A.W. Tozer begins his book, Knowledge of the Holy, with a very quotable quote. The most important thing about us, what, no, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. But what do we think about God? I think about what my church says. Now let's think about that conversation just a little bit. It's not necessarily a bad conversation, not necessarily bad answers, because we as a church want each of us to believe the same doctrines. We have a doctrinal statement for HBC. You can go to our website and you can see it spelled out there with all the verses to back up each point that we believe. If anybody joins this church going through New Connections, you will be told to read the doctrinal statement and there's going to be a question, do you agree with our doctrinal statement? And we send people to the, into missions, into global ministry. And those who become candidates to go out, we ask of them to write out your doctrinal statement, point by point. It's important that we know what we believe. So we think thoughts about God that we're thinking the right thoughts. But this has been going on for a long time. In 1646, the West, Westminster Confessional Faith was written. Documents still followed very carefully by the Reformed Presbyterian denomination. In 1689, there was the Baptist Confession of Faith. It's gone through many re re revisions, but it's basically the same. Around 400 AD, it, the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed was written. It goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living 
and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And that creed has been around for a long time. And even today, more liturgic denominations still will recite this every Sunday. I had someone come to me after the first service from a different country who's come to the United States. He says, in our church back home, we said that every Sunday. Now, there's a problem. That particular creed could become just a traditional statement. And there are those who are opposed to tradition. But however, tradition is telling us the faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We do not want to go through the traditions or just traditionally without knowing what we believe. About three years ago, Al Mohler, who is the president of, of a Southern Seminary in Louisville, wrote an article, Seven Reasons the Apostle Creed is Needed for the Church. He flushes these all out, but let me just give this to you. Creeds define the truth. Creeds correct error. Creeds provide rules and standards for God's people. Creeds teach the church how to worship and confess the faith. Creeds connect us to the faith of our fathers. Creeds summarize the faith, and creeds define true Christian unity. So there's a lot of value in a creed, especially if it's a correct creed, and one that you can draw upon if you get into a conversation like, what do you believe? It's very important that we do know what we believe because it's a common misconception today that there's not a whole lot of difference between three main world religions. There are those, especially those who are not churched at all, who are going to say Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are basically the same. They worship the same God. And unfortunately, there are Christians who don't believe anything differently. They see it all as one. But there's another misconception. And that's the idea, the mistaken idea, that the God of the Old Testament is portrayed differently from the God seen in the New Testament. They see the God of the Old Testament as some mean, brutal person who's just waiting to find an opportunity to strike him down. And I guess, they, I guess they get some of that from what God had to do to the Canaanites when Israel was given the land under Joshua and also how he had to deal with his own people in the book of Judges and through the kings and all of that. But some seem to think he was a mean God of the Old Testament, but he softened up as finally a nice God by the time we get to the New Testament because now he is loving and kind and that is a horrible perception of our God. Now, in talking about the 
Apostles' Creed and these different confessions of faith by, let's say, Westminster and the Baptist one, there were a lot of points that had to be hammered out. Because after Jesus returned to heaven, disciples were involved in writing the scriptures, but there was a lot of discussion in the first few hundred years. What, do we re what does the Bible really teach? And they had to get together and hammer out some of these doctrines at different church councils. For example, what exactly is the Trinity? What exactly is the relationship of Jesus to the Father? What exactly is the true nature of Jesus? Was he really God? Was he really man? How do you combine? What's going on here? So church councils hammered that out. But when it comes to the doctrine of God in the Old Testament, there were no church councils. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were learning things as they were going along. And Moses, he's going to write about all their experiences, and he didn't have it all together yet. But he needed some information. And it's interesting, we're going to have Israel's credo of God not delivered, not developed by Moses, but by God himself. And it comes at the strangest of circumstances and events. I'm referring to Exodus chapter 34. And I want to read the credo as we see it there. But then we'll come back to talk about it. I am reading from the NIV, the old NIV, the one I've been using for centuries. And so bear with me. It won't be that different from what translation you have. The Lord came down in a cloud. This is verse 6. Five, and he stood there with Moses and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's what God delivered to Moses. Now, what was the situation? What was going on? What is the background leading to that particular theological statement about himself? We start in Exodus chapter 20. Now, you know Israel had just come out of Egypt and they had seen the works of their mighty God, their God, and how he had handled the so-called gods of the Egyptians with all the plagues. They had come to Mount Sinai, and then God spoke to them from the top of the mountain. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of your bondage. Number one, you shall not have any other gods before me. Two, you shall not make any graven image to these non-gods or bow down to them. Those are the first two commandments. There are going to be eight more, and there are going to be some corollaries to those ten commandments in the next couple of chapters. But then in chapter 24, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain where he's going to give him some personal instructions that's going to involve all the Israelites. He begins to lay out for him the description 
instructions concerning the tabernacle and the furnishings that's going to go into that. Plus, he's going to give them information about the priesthood. Now, we know that when he called him up there, Moses is going to tell us ahead of time, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. It's quite a while to be away from his people, but the people begin to question his absence. And so that's why in chapter 32, they're going to come to Aaron's. This is kind of a Hartman paraphrase. We don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. Make us a God that we can worship. So Aaron is going to do one of the stupidest things. Bring me your golden trinkets, and he's going to fashion a calf, mount it, and then say, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. And they worshiped it in the most frenzied way. Now, Moses doesn't know what's happening. He's up in heaven, okay? Uh, up, not, yet, not yet, yet, yet. He's still on the mountain. But he's up on the mountain, and God's going to clue him in. And so this is what's going to happen a little later. The Lord said to Moses, go down. Now he's been there 40 days and 40 nights, and I wonder how long that session would have lasted if he had not been interrupted by Israel's sin down at the base of the mountain. But here's what God says to him. Go down because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and they have said, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people. Now leave, go down there, and let me alone so I can destroy them. My anger is burning within me. And Moses, hold it. Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt? Why should the Egyptians say it was evil intent that he brought them out? In other words, what's going to happen to your reputation? The Egyptians know what you did to us. Now you're going to take us out here and do the same thing to the, us? What are they going to think about you? And what about your commitment? You're, you're coming with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You told them you're going to make a people out of us. You're going to wipe them out? Start over with me? God's going to relent. Moses continues on down the mountain, and then he sees the image, he sees the people, and he too is going to be angry. He had in his hands the, the uh, tablets of stone, and especially the one that says, do not make engraven image, do not worship any other gods. In his anger, he breaks it up, grinds it to powder, throws it into the water, drink it. And then he's going to call for some Levites, join me, and they're going to set the record straight, and 3,000 people are going to be killed. And then in chapter 33, God tells Moses, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send you up and send an angel with you, but I'm not going to, my presence will not be there. And Moses is going to say, no, no, no. 
And then the Lord's going to relent again. And we're going to find that Moses had a special relationship with God. Now, you know from James chapter 2, verse 23, that Abraham was called the friend of God. And I think the same could certainly be said of Moses, although it's not stated quite like that. But we're told that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We also know from Numbers chapter 12 when Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses, God came to the rescue of Moses and told Moses, uh, Aaron and Mo, uh, Miriam, how dare you speak against Moses? When I speak to prophets, I speak to them in visions and dreams. Not Moses. I speak to him face to face. We've got a special relationship going on here. And that's the kind of thing God is revealing to Moses right now. Even a few months before the Aaron Miriam incident. And so, the Lord says, my presence will go with you. I know your name. I know you have, you, have, and you have found favor with me. And then again in 33 verse 19, he says, I am pleased to be with you. I know you by name. I am pleased with you. And then Moses thinks, opportunity. He says, please show me your glory. Now, I'm not sure what Moses wanted to see. We're not told. But we're told the Lord told him, this is verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you can't see my face. There's a place here where I'll put you in this little cleft, and I will cover you as I pass by. But my glory you can't see. We are not told how God fulfilled that, but we are told in chapter 34 that there's going to be something different. See, I'm not sure what Moses was expecting to see, but in the passage that I just read for you, we're going to see that God has something better. Moses, you're not going to just see a flash of light, brilliant glory. I want to reveal something more glorious. I want you to see something about me, especially in this context. So once again, God is not letting Moses hammer out a theological statement about God. God is going to present it himself about himself. And so it starts like this. Now remember, the name is very important. And we want to just unpack these ingredients line by line, not in great detail, but just enough, hopefully. Here is the credo that Israel needed to know. Here's what they needed to know about God so that there was no mistaken ideas about him. So it starts out this way. The Lord. The Lord. I prefer to go Yahweh. Yahweh. 
That seems a little strange, but perhaps we should follow the leads of some who want to translate it this way. Yahweh, he is Yahweh. And that should ring a bell with you because in chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses was introduced to God at the burning bush, I am who I am. That's who you're going to tell the Israelite people is sending you. I am sent me. It just so happens that I am and Yahweh come from the very same root. So we're kind of back to square one with Moses. He's talking to the same God who called him. Now he's going to flesh out who he is and some theology about him. Now look how it starts. My translation is going to use the word compassionate. I think if you have ESV, some of the translations say merciful. And uh, and there there are different ways of doing it. But the same Hebrew word. He says this. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Let's stop right there. In this particular circumstance, after what Israel has just done, is this how you would expect God to introduce himself? I am compassionate. I am gracious. Is that what any of us would have expected in those circumstances after Israel has so fragrantly dishonored and disloyal to their God. To learn, he's compassionate. He's gracious. Yes, there was the effulgence of God's glory that Moses could not behold, but God's character, his glory revealed in his name shows God's highest priority in revealing himself. He is compassionate and gracious. That's where we start. Followed by slow to anger. God is not explosively angry. The Hebrew is kind of strange. I know Pastor Nathan has mentioned this before. That the word anger and nostril is the same word. Hebrew says he is long of nostril. So what in the world? Well, let me help you here. Have you ever seen a picture or even a cartoon figure of a uh, charging, angry bull? How do you know he's angry? The nostrils are flared. He's snorting. That pictures God if he were not slow to anger if he were not long of nostril. In other words, God's anger prolongs itself. He allows for people to repent before punishment is inflicted. Now, not that he will not punish, but it's just that he's not one of those quick draw kinds of gods who strike you dead immediately. Humanly speaking, God can put up with a lot. Now, do not mistake this statement for saying that God will drop his holy demands of us. At different times, Scripture uses this term. He was provoked to anger. Now, I like this expression. It's a very interesting term. You see, provoke is a word that we might talk about stimulating, giving rise to. 
And uh, I don't know about you, we can easily provoke one another. That is, get under one another's skin to the point of causing angry outbursts. God is slow to anger. He has to be provoked to anger. As if anger does not come naturally for him. He's not just waiting for us to do something that will vindicate an emotional outburst of his anger with its dangerous, damaging consequences. There. I knew it. You just showed me. Bam. That's how I would react. There is an interesting fact that Scripture instructs you and I as believers to provoke one another. Careful. Hebrews 10, 24 says, we are to provoke one another to love. God doesn't need to be provoked to love. He only needs provoked to be angry. Believers need no provoking to anger. That comes naturally. We only have to be provoked to love. And on the the same thing of thinking here, God does not speak of being provoked to love. Or mercy. That too is so natural for him. There's never a time when he says, You make me so, so, so wanting to love you. I've finally been provoked to the point I can now love you. Never. Now consider these first three words. Three key attributes in the light of the context of Israel's present sin breaking the first two basic commandments. Do these words support the misconception that the God of the Bible is an angry, mean, and resentful God just waiting to destroy? No, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he is long of nostril, slow to anger, followed by this statement, abounding in steadfast love. Chesed. Now, Compassion, graciousness, slow to anger, I think is based on this word chesed. Now, why do I say that? Chesed is a word that talks about the covenant, loyal love of God, established with Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, way back. It's used about 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's a love that endures forever. Let's do something I think is going to be interesting. Would you turn in your Bible to one, Psalm 136? I'm going to do something maybe a little strange. Bear with me. Psalm 136. We're going to read this psalm responsibly. That means I'm going to read one line and you're going to follow with another line and it doesn't make any difference which translation you read because I'm going to read the translation that may be a little bit different and I'm going to tell you how you are to respond. See, the psalm starts like this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then we're going to respond. His chesed endures forever. Can you say the word chesed? Chesed, okay, you tried, but 
You'll improve over time because I'm going to give you 26 opportunities. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read, and we're going to read quickly, but you will respond every time with, you don't even have to look at your text, every time you're going to respond is <laughs> endures forever. Okay, here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Ah, you're on it already. Give thanks to the Lord, to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone God does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. He made the great lights. His son, or the sun, to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. And brought Israel through the midst of it. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led people through the desert. Who struck down great kings. Killed many mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land an inheritance. An inheritance to his servant Israel. To the one who remembered us in our low estate. And freed us from our enemies. And who gave food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Now let me ask you a very simple question and please don't blow it. And the words of our pastors from time to time as they are preaching. What was the psalmist's big idea? His chesed endures forever. You got it. You nailed it. I took you here because this is the kind of phraseology with chesed is used so often. And moving back to our text now in Exodus 34, I want you to keep following what's coming here. Not only do we learn that God's commitment to his people is entered into in a covenant with, it's at his initiative. He has bound himself and his word to his people. It can often be said of humans that his word, his contract, it's not worth the paper it was written on. That cannot be said of God. His chesed is going to help us understand his compassion, his graciousness, and also his slowness to anger. But note, there's another word here. It's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at that word faithfulness. It just reiterates the truth of it all. God never entertains the thought of turning his heart from his people. He never gives up on our unfaithfulness or considers withdrawing from us like we might want another. He is not fickle like we are. And then you have the other word, abounding. He abounds in this steadfast love and faithfulness. Reminds me of 
Well, first of all, this kind of love, this covenant of love reminds me of the hymn written by George Matheson back in 18, I think, 82. Oh, love that will not let me go. We don't hear that song anymore. A great one. But there's one more recently written you might be familiar with. Written by Annie Johnson Flint. She died in 1932. But she wrote these words. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added affliction he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. Recognize this? His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite or boundless riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth. And we could just keep going again, boundless. It also says he's keeping steadfast love chesed for thousands. But it's interesting, it doesn't say thousand what? So you have to supply a thousand people. I think it's been more than that. A thousand generations? Probably. Some translations don't know what to do with this word thousand, so they just say forever. And that's probably a good interpretation because how do you put a number on something that's abounding. Moses is being instructed in this regard right now after Israel has been caught up in this horrible sin. But then we're also told forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God assures his people of his forgiveness, but there's that warning. He does not abandon his people, but he does forgive. And he will not let them go unpunished. It's interesting, here we are around 1400 BC and around 700 BC, about 700 years later. Isaiah is going to say this for God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting chesed, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. So you have this balance between justice and benevolence. He is very much a God of compassion, but with justice. Our passage begins with his compassion. So, Israel's, God's people were not to preserve, presume on his later punishment because they're being reminded of the former. They should not think of his wrath. They should not accept anything but his loyal love. And it says, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's a limit to his judgment, to his punishment. But his passion, his grace, no limit. Now, 
How was Moses to respond to what had just been revealed to him? We're told he bowed at once to the ground and worshipped. Now note, there was no organ, there was no piano, there was no keyboard, there were no brass instruments, there was no string instruments, there was no guitar, there were no drums, there wasn't any lyrics. We throw all that together and say, we worshipped. No. Worship is more than singing. It's the positioning of the heart. And when Moses heard all of it, he, this, he was overwhelmed and bowed his heart and head to the Lord. Ever since Genesis 3, when man sinned, we've been entrenched in this dark and misinformed idea about who God is. And again, I tell you, so often, and even Christians, are tempted to believe that God was mean and brutal, just looking for a way, an opportunity to strike us down. But his own revelation of himself here in Exodus 34 begs to differ with that opinion. And Moses understood this and bowed to the ground in worship. Now, I've been calling this a credo or creed. And there's a reason for this label because this is not the only time we're going to hear this particular statement. This is the first occurrence, but there's going to be more occurrences. And what was the impact of this statement on Moses and for Israelites to come? Let me give you just a couple examples. In the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verse 18, the 12 spies had looked over the land and came back, 10 of them with a bad report saying, we can't take it, it's a good land, but we can't take it. We're, we, let's go back to Egypt. These 10 spies are going to get the people all upset against God. And one more time, God steps in and says, I'm going to wipe out these people. I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. And then we hear this statement. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. This is not God speaking. This is Moses speaking. He's taking that statement from God, and I'm saying this reverently, he's basically throwing it back in the face of God. Remember what you said? Here is the credo you gave me about yourself. You, what you say you're going to do right now does not line up with who you say you are. And God will relent once again. Four times, David, in three different Psalms, is going to talk about this. Oh, Lord, you are good and forgiving, abounding in chesed. Four different times he will say this. And I could tell you what Nehemiah says in a prayer of confession. We could go to the book of Joel, but let's go to just one more. And this is such a, a strange situation, a strange circumstance to have this particular Credo, once again, thrown back in the face of God. In the book of Jonah, you know he did not want to go to Nineveh. He talk, took off a different direction, but he was arrested by a great fish. And then he ends up in Nineveh and begins to preach. Not that he wanted them to repent. 
It was just obligation. It was just duty. And then when God did not destroy the Ninevites, he was up set with God and you know how he went outside the city waited for it to be destroyed and it wasn't he had more he had more love for a gourd coming up than he did for the people in Nineveh and then he made this confession a theological confession he prayed to the Lord this is Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 he prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made my haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in chesed. And you relent from disaster. What words from a missionary? One who has experienced the chesed, the love, compassion of God while he was disobeying and fleeing and got caught in the belly of his great fish and giving a second chance. He did not want the same chance being extended to these Ninevites. They're pagans. They're pagans. And I knew this is the kind of God you were. I like how the Contemporary English Bible translates this. It may sound a little irreverent, but I think it really was the heartbeat of, no, of, of, jo of Jonah. It goes like this. Come on, Lord! Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my homeland? That's why I went to Tarshish. Come on! You'd like to just take Jonah aside... Maybe slap a little sense into him. But what amazes me, he had correct theology. Just didn't like it for somebody else. So that's why I've been talking about this credo. This is what God wanted Moses and the Israelites and everyone to follow them to know. Now, there's one more passage in the Old Testament I want to refer to. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 to 6, we have what we refer to as the Shema. Pastor Nathan refers to it frequently. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you're supposed to pass it on down to the next generation and the next generation. Talk about your families all the time. That's what they were supposed to do. That was the what. But the description, this God is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, slow to anger. This is the God you're supposed to be teaching your children about. I want you to keep a very important point in mind. After God gave this description of character, no one, not even Moses, or any other Old Testament person, had yet seen God in his full radiance, or any physical likeness of him in any way. That was to be revealed at a later time. 
And it's going to be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who revealed the Father to mankind. Just look at the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out the Word was Jesus. We find that out in verse 14. Because we're told that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what does John say about that one? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And even now, that glory is going to be shown in Jesus' humanity. I don't think they still have seen his ultimate glory. And what's interesting, when Jesus was transfigured among them, we're told that his face shone as the sun. His clothes got bright. It was blinding. And guess who was there to witness it? Moses and Elijah. Moses may have wait, had to wait a long time to get his request answered. Now, this one who was transfigured, This one moved around among the people. The disciples knew him. It's interesting in Matthew 11, Jesus had to reprimand very strongly a couple cities. And you would think, here's the angry God coming out in Jesus. But then in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, he says this, come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, compassionate, gracious. As Dane Ortland says in his book, this is the only time Jesus describes himself to anyone. Old Testament, God described himself to Moses. Now here is Jesus describing himself after a series of rebukes. Gentle and lowly in heart. What comes to your mind when you think about God is going to be the most important thing about you. And would you have the right answers to engage in a conversation? If somebody should ask you, what do you believe as a Christian? I'm returning back to that original conversation. If you were asked that, would you be ready and able to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and everything in them. Mankind created in his image who sinned and brought sin into this world. But this God unleashed his plan to save men. He revealed himself as the compassionate and gracious God, one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. He is gentle and lowly of heart. 
and he welcomes me to come to him. He suffered and died for my sin. He rose after three days to ascend to heaven and is seated on the right hand of the God, the Father, and is there interceding for me on my behalf right now. I believe in the Holy Spirit who has pursued me and convicted me a sinner and brought me to Jesus who has forgiven my sins. This Holy Spirit is living within me to sanctify me and conform me to the image of my Lord. This is what I believe. And so does my church. We firmly believe the same thing. I'm hoping you can say that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself in the Old Testament. We know you're a holy God. We know we are sinners. We know we deserve punishment. But thank you that you are a compassionate, gracious God who is slow to anger and has long, everlasting, faithful love. And we're thankful that we can see that demonstrated to the absolute degree when you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Help us make that our conviction that we are ready to share whenever asked and help us to create environments and situations and circumstances where we can share this. Thank you for being faithful to us. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.